0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Elmore Leonard. This program originally aired in 2007. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Connoy, and this is The Exchange. Celebrated mystery and crime novelist Elmore Dutch Leonard traveled to New Hampshire last week to join us for the most recent installment of our Writers on a New England Stage series, Part author presentation, part interview, Writers on a New England Stage is a partnership between New Hampshire Public Radio, the Music Hall in Portsmouth, and River Run Books, bringing the best in literature to the Granite State. Elmore Leonard has been called the Dickens of Detroit, the author of 43 books over a 50-plus year career. His novels have attracted a wide range of fans due to their strong focus on dialogue, gritty realism, and ability to be turned into major motion pictures like Get Shorty and Jackie Brown. But Leonard also writes about writing. His essay, Ten Rules of Writing, will soon be published in booklet form. It's a list of do's and don'ts for aspiring fiction authors, such as Never begin your book by describing the weather. Hold off on all the exclamation points dialogue should always be clarified with the word said and never be followed by an adverb. But most of all, Leonard says, if it sounds like writing, rewrite it. Elmo Leonard came to New Hampshire last week to talk about his newest book, Up in Honey's Room. It's set in Leonard's beloved hometown of Detroit as World War II is drawing to a close. The novel is an often comedic tale of Carl, a federal marshal, and a sexy divorcee named Honey, who were both trying to capture two escaped German prisoners of war. The story includes a cast of memorable characters, including a cadre of Nazi sympathizers, a cross-dressing refugee, and a plan to kill President Roosevelt. Last week, Elmore Leonard talked about Up in Honey's Room and his rules for writing. Later, I joined him on stage with a few of my own questions and several from our audience. Our house band Dreadnought, heard here, provided the evening's music. Today on The Exchange, we bring you part of this performance.
1: Thank you. I'm going to open with the first paragraph of a review of Up in Honey's Room, which appeared in Newsday, I think yesterday. And it said, There are lots of different ideas about what makes a writer great, but among them has to be the ability to make the line, Have you ever been to Cleveland?, Sounds seductive. <laughs> and <clears throat> I didn't know it was that seductive. <laughs> but it does... Uh, well, I'm not going to say anything about the plot at all. But, because when I started writing the book, my original title was Hitler's Birthday. And I thought that was a terrific title. And all my friends liked it, too. Hitler's Birthday, yeah. April the 20th, if you didn't know that. Then, of course, I told my editor, and she said, Hitler's birthday? She said, Hitler doesn't sell. (laughs) Not anymore. You have to think of something else. She said, if we we were to send your book to uh, bookstores or, or announce the fact that your new book is Hitler's birthday, the bookstores would cut their orders in half or even more than that. Well, I'm anxious to sell books. I would like to have as many readers as as I can. So I said, All right, I'll change the title. And I changed it to Honey originally was Helen. So I thought Up in Helen's Room is you know, it needs a little more. So I changed her name to Honey, Up in Honey's Room. And then I thought I maybe I should end the book Up in Honey's Room. At least let's fulfill the title. And that happens. Everybody in the book, I think just about everybody, is up in Honey's room for the big finish. (laughs) And and it is, I think it's a big finish. Um, I never know how my book is going to end. I don't want to know, because I make it up as I go along. And I like to sit down at my desk in the morning, and I have an idea for... A scene. I know what the next scene is, but I'm not sure yet whose point of view it should be told from. And that's important to me because I want to remain out of the book. I don't want you to be aware, the reader, of my sound. I want the sounds of the characters to prevail. So I'm always writing from a character's point of view. And the character might not be grammatical You know, he might not be grammatically correct all the time But I don't want uh, proper usage necessarily to get in the way of the sound of the story Because that's the way I think of my books as the writing, as a sound It started with the main character, Carl Webster, was in The Hot Kid He was a 1920s, 1930s federal marshal in Oklahoma his dad was a Marine on the battleship Maine in Cuba Libre. And his, his dad was blown off the main when, when the ship was blown up. He comes home with a Cuban wife and has Carlos. Carlos in the beginning. Then he finally allowed people to call him Carl and went along with that. I liked Carl a lot. And I like the fact that he was kind of a show-off and that his ambition was to be the most famous lawman in America. And he did enough to establish that in shooting bank robbers. And as I went along with him, developed another story that appeared as a serial in in, um, New York Times in the magazine, 14-part serial. He brought his career up to 1945 and at the end of that serial two prisoners of war, German prisoners of war, escaped from a camp in Oklahoma. Now at that time there were three hundred and fifty thousand German prisoners of war in the United States in about five hundred different camps. And I didn't know that. I was in the Navy and I was in the Pacific in 1945. I came home in 46 and I don't think I really heard about it then either. That there were so many prisoners of war. Most of the ones in uh, the book, uh, most of the ones who were in the serial, were from uh, Rommel's Africa Corps, and uh, they were—they're were very tough soldiers, and they—they they had to surrender because they ran out of gas. But they didn't feel that they were surrendering because they were beaten. They ran out of gas. That's all. But when they got to the United States and were in the camps, they loved it. They had three meals a day. They had their own cooks. They uh, had their own entertainment. They saw movies. They put on plays. They had a good time. They, very, very few of them escaped, I mean, for any length of time. They'd escape, go off, walk off for a few days, and then they'd get hungry and come back to the camp. So that's the way uh, I approached it, that two of them are going to escape, and Carl Webster is going to have to go after him, and he knows they're going to be in Detroit, because one of them told him earlier they had become friends, and he told him that he lived in Detroit when he was a teenager for two or three years. So Carl's very sure they're in Detroit. Well, once he gets to Detroit, then uh, the story begins. It's a lot of fun to write it. In fact, all my books are fun to write, because I never know what they're going to be about because I begin with characters and develop their attitudes and how they oppose one another, how they get along, how they fall in love, how they do whatever they do. And with that in mind, the first hundred pages or so, I don't have too much trouble. Then I get into the second hundred pages and it becomes a little more difficult and I have to begin to plot a little bit. And I don't like to plot. I wish I could just begin with an idea, with a terrific idea that you're dying to read, and I would just sit back and write it. But I don't do it that way. I don't begin with the idea. I begin with the characters. I begin with characters in situations and how they work themselves in and out of whatever the situations are. For example, Tishomingo Blues, I thought, guy dives off the top of an 80-foot ladder, I thought, what? he sounds like a pretty interesting guy. Let's find out about him, see what he does. You know, so I asked my researcher to see if he can find some high divers somewhere. So he found them in. Uh, they were in the Florida Panhandle. We went down to talk to them. They were putting up the ladder at that time. And uh, that evening, they put on their show. We got to talk to them, have dinner with them, and and uh, find out what they thought and, you know, what kind of guys they were. So I, I, I developed a story about a high diver who's been diving for quite a while, and he sets up at a casino, gambling casino in Mississippi, where he will put on his act twice a day. And then I found out, though, that that's all he does. He just dives. So then I have to bring some other Dixie Mafia in. I have to bring the bad guys in. I have to bring, you know, other characters in. So that's all right. It's part of making it up as I go along and then finally getting to a certain point where I have to think of how to end it. But there's, there are always multiple ways to end it. Right now, I'm writing a book, and I'm going to feature Jack Foley, who is in Out of Sight. Jack Foley is a bank robber. And in Out of Sight, at the end of Out of Sight, he had escaped in the beginning of the book, and in the end, he's being taken back to prison in Florida where he's facing 30 years I thought I want to use Jack Foley again because George Clooney played him and Foley was one of George Clooney's favorite characters and so my agent told him that I'm writing another Jack Foley and and Clooney thought that was a great idea that I could come out and talk to him anytime I wanted of course I didn't have anything to talk to him about (laughs) So I got him out of prison, and I didn't want him to escape again. He had already escaped once. He had to get out free and clear. So he appeals the 30 years, and it's reduced to two and a half years with time served. So he gets out, and I thought, now, who's the woman? Well, there's one I like very much. Her name is Dawn Navarro, and she's a psychic. We'll see what happens with her. But I think she and Foley, I see, getting together to make money. Then I think, who's the bad guy? Well, I like Kundo Ray, who was in La Brava. And Kundo Ray was a Cuban who came to the United States when Castro opened the prisons and let all the bad guys come to Miami for their vacation. And... Kundo Ray, I had a lot of fun with because he was a go-go dancer. He, and he danced, he painted whiskers on his face and wore a little leopard skin jockstrap. <laughs> and he danced go-go. Sometimes in gay bars, but more often in clubs where, uh, for ladies' night. Ladies' night, the ladies would slip their tips into his jockstrap and he was he was funny but he also killed people he had killed a few people but i liked him a lot and i thought i mean he i mean he was he was funny and i thought i hope he's still alive so i i opened la brava toward the end and joe la brava shoots him in the chest three times And I thought, oh, God. But Joe LaBrava had to get out of there for whatever was going on in the story. He couldn't wait to, you know, feel a pulse or anything. He just left. So there was the opportunity. (laughs) So that when the emergency guys get there, blood's coming out of his mouth. He's still breathing. They take him to the hospital, and he's in a coma for 62 days. And then... Once he wakes up and he's not handcuffed to the bed, he probably was earlier, he, he believes, but not anymore because he was arrested for murder. He plays it cautiously. He listens to nurse aides speaking Spanish and he hears them talking to a guy who's mopping the floor who has that Cuban accent. And he tells the guy from Cuba, Get me out of here and I'll make you rich. And the guy gets him out. And he ends up, Kundo Ray ends up in Los Angeles in the 80s when cocaine was very big. Crack and cocaine were very big in the film industry. And he became friends with actors, people in the business. However, one of them snitches on him so that he can do time in... California, federal time in California, except they don't want to prosecute him there because it would reveal who their snitch is, who's a famous actor. So they send him back to Florida for the murder charge, and this very beautiful, bright young criminal attorney makes a deal with the uh, prosecutor 10 years. How about 10 years for second degree murder, and that's it. So he has to accept that same lawyer, beautiful young criminal lawyer, gets Jack Foley off so that Jack Foley then goes out to uh it's funny how I, I'm writing this now, you know that's why i I can talk about it more it, it's with me right now. you know he's going to go out to uh, Venice Beach and live in a three million dollar home, and Don navarro who Everyone believes he's married to Kundo Ray, is living in another million-dollar home, and, of course, they're going to meet. And they think, well, Kundo's got to have a lot of money. My God, he's got these homes. He's, some of them he's even uh, he's sold. I mean, he, he bought, and then when the prices went up, he sold them. So where's his money? They know that he's got a friend by the name of Little Jimmy who runs a sports book. Little Jimmy is also Cuban. And he may be gay, but we're not sure. As the character, the cross-dresser, in, up in Honey's room, Baudin, I'm not sure if he's gay or not, but he, he loves to wear women's clothes, and there's a certain sweater and skirt. The head, of the, the head of the spies, Vera, says, listen, you can wear a dress at the party tomorrow night. And she's going to bring in all the other spies. They're going to have a nice time. And he says, she says, you can wear the black with the sequins. And he says, oh, great, but he doesn't. He wears a gray sweater and skirt, and everyone thinks he looks really good. But he's the bad guy. If if you're reading the book and you haven't quite seen him in action, well, keep your eyes on him because he's a bad, bad guy. But I liked him. I liked all my characters. I have an affection for all of them, I, even the bad guys who I can't help. it. I mean, they can't help the way they are. They're either just dumb or lazy or, you know, they want to cut corners. They want to make a lot of money. And that's, it's okay with me. I, I can feel sorry for them that they're that way. I don't know how this book's going to turn out, but I think it's going to be good. <laughs> and I'm hoping... George Clooney will love it <laughs> because then we'll get something going. The only thing I have going right now in the, in the movie business, well actually a couple of things. One, Killshot, a book that I wrote about ten years ago maybe. Killshot was developed by John Madden who directed Shakespeare in Love and he wanted to remain true to the book. And he remained so true to it that the, the test audience weren't sure what was going on. <laughs> because in a book, I could suddenly send people out to Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and you, and you know that what's happening in the book, the reason. But in the movie, it just didn't quite work. So next Tuesday, John Madden is going to come to Detroit, and I'm going to be home for a couple of days, and he's going to show me the movie. Because he wants me to be pleased, which is unheard of in Hollywood that the director would be anxious for the guy who wrote the book, not the screenplay. The book wants him to be pleased. Well, I'll be pleased. I know I will, because I like John Madden a lot. But I also would like to touch on this evening my rules for writing which I came up with in the year 2000 when I was the uh, guest of honor at the Boucher Con, which is a gathering of mystery writers and uh, crime writers. And we all met in Denver, and I had to give a talk, so I thought, why don't I give a little talk on my rules, which I would make up that afternoon. <laughs> but but uh, rules that I had in mind, of course. At that time, they were sort of tongue in cheek. But they're not entirely tongue in cheek because they've caught on. There are people, there are journalists especially, who tell me those rules should be up on the wall in the city room, every city room, because they're true, they're accurate. So when I came off the stage after I read the rules, the guy said, Can I have that? I said, Yeah, and I handed him my rules. So, but I knew what they were. So about a year later, the New York Times had a column going, Writers on Writing. And they said, uh, would you do something for us? And I said, all right, I'll, I'll do my rules now, and I'll elaborate on them and, you know, fill them out uh, so that maybe they'll even make more sense than originally. So I wrote my rules. Now, these rules are going to be published... I think in the fall. There are only ten rules because you know ten is a good number for rules. Or, uh, (laughs) and the book, it'll be smaller than in size than uh, the say novel size, but it'll be about uh, I think between uh, sixty and seventy pages because there are illustrations and. You know, there's just a lot of stuff in it. So I call this my ten rules for success and happiness writing fiction. These are rules i picked up along the way to help me remain invisible when I'm writing a book, to help me show rather than tell what's taking place in the story. If you have a facility for language and imagery and the sound of your voice pleases you, Invisibility is not what you are after, and you can skip the rules. <laughs> Still, you might look them over. The first rule, never open a book with weather. If it's only to create atmosphere, and not a character's reaction to the weather, you don't want to go on too long. The reader is apt to leaf ahead looking for people. There are exceptions. If you happen to be Barry Lopez, who has more ways to, to describe ice and snow in his book Arctic Dreams than an Eskimo, you can do all the weather reporting you want. Avoid prologues. They can be annoying, especially a prologue following an introduction that comes after a foreword. <laughs> but they're, they're ordinarily just found in nonfiction. A prologue in a novel is backstory, and you can drop it in anywhere you want. There's a prologue in John Steinbeck's Sweet Thursday, but it's okay because a character in the book makes the point of what my rules are are all about. He says, I like a lot of talk in a book, and I don't like to have nobody tell me what the guy that's talking looks like. I want to figure out what he looks like from the way he talks. Figure out what the guy's thinking from what he says. I like some description, but not too much of that. Sometimes I want a book to break loose with a bunch of de doodle Spin up some pretty words, maybe, or sing a little song with language. That's nice. But I wish it was set aside so I don't have to read it. (laughs) I don't want de doodle to get mixed up with the story. All right. Number three. Never use a verb other than said to carry dialogue. The line of dialogue belongs to the characters. The verb is the writer sticking his nose in. But said is far less intrusive than grumbled, gasped, cautioned, lied. I once noticed Mary McCarthy ending a line of dialogue with, She asseverated." and had to stop reading and get the dictionary. (laughs) Never use an adverb to modify the verb said, he admonished gravely. To use an adverb this way, or almost any way, I say is a mortal sin. The writer is now exposing himself in earnest, using a word that distracts and can interrupt the rhythm of the exchange. I have a character in one of my books tell how she used to write historical romances full of rape and adverbs. <laughs> and those books, those those historical <clears throat> romances always had a lot of adverbs and exclamation points. And that... Rule number five, I say keep your exclamation points under control. You are allowed no more than two or three per 100,000 words of prose. If you have the knack of playing with exclaimers the way Tom Wolfe does, you can throw them in by the handful. He just has fun with them. Never use the words suddenly or all hell broke loose. This rule doesn't require an explanation. I have noticed that writers who use suddenly tend to exercise less control in the application of exclamation points. Use regional dialect, patois, sparingly. Once you start spelling words in uh, dialogue fanatically and loading the page with apostrophes, you won't be able to stop. Notice the way Annie Proulx captures the flavor and Wyoming voices in her book of short stories, Close Range. And in that book is, the, is the, what became a movie about the two gay cowboys. She's, she's quite a good writer. Avoid detailed descriptions of characters, which Steinbeck covered. In Ernest Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants, what do the, quote, American and the girl with him, end of quote, look like. She had taken off her hat and put it on the table. That's the only reference to a physical description in the story. And yet we see the couple and know them by their tones of voice, with not one adverb in sight. Don't go into great detail describing places and things, unless you're Margaret Atwood and you can paint scenes with language or write landscapes in the style of Jim Harrison. But even if you're good at it, you don't want descriptions that bring the action, the flow of the story, to a standstill. And finally, try to leave out the parts that readers tend to skip. (laughs) Which may be the most important rule. This rule came to mind in 1983. I, don't, <laughs> I was at having lunch at Book of the Month Club, and someone asked me a question: "How do you do whatever it was?" The question. And I said, "Well, I try to leave out the parts that people skip," and, that, and everybody thought that was funny. So I included that in my rules. <laughs> but, although I had not read, I hadn't written my rules yet. Think of what you skip reading a novel: thick passages of prose, you can see, have too many words in them. What the writer is doing, he's writing, perpetrating hoop-de-doodle, perhaps taking another shot at the weather, or has gone into the character's head, and the reader either knows what the guy's thinking or doesn't care. I'll bet you don't skip dialogue. And my most important rule is one that sums them all up. And if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. But I always think of the, uh, a sentence that begins, upon entering the room, or if proper usage gets in the way, it may have to go. I can't allow what we learned in English composition to disrupt the sound and the rhythm of the narrative. It's my attempt to remain invisible, not distract the reader from the story with obvious writing. Joseph Conrad said something about words getting in the way of what you want to say. If I write in scenes and always from the point of view of a particular character, the one whose view best brings the scene to life, I'm able to concentrate on the voices of the characters telling you who they are and how they feel about what they see and what's going on, and I'm nowhere in sight.
0: not. <laughs> Did you know that's our theme song that Bob Lord composed and uh, wrote for the exchange? So, thank you, especially Bob. It's wonderful. And how great to be back here at the Music Hall for yet another edition of Writers on a New England Stage. And I see a full house out there. That's terrific. It's wonderful to be here. And it's great to be here with Elmer Leonard. And uh, this book brings us back into a piece of World War II history. It's often overlooked. You know, we're so focused on the battles in Europe and the battles in Japan. This is a piece of history that we don't write about that much. Worries about Germany right here on the home front. Uh, Worries about Nazi sympathizers. Worries about escaped prisoners. How valid were those worries that, you know, maybe the Nazis were really quite active and were going to do some bad stuff right here? But they
1: weren't successful. that was the main thing. There were saboteurs who came were dropped off by a submarine and uh, they had uh, plans to blow up factories but never came to pass. They were captured almost immediately and and several were uh, executed. The, The Nazi spies in Detroit were very inept. They didn't know what they were doing at all. There was one woman who Did go to spy school in Germany, but as soon as they began to uh, concentrate on her, she gave up. And then she gave all her uh, people up, too. But none of them was any good to begin with.
0: It's interesting, because the Nazis were good at lots of things. It's kind of surprising that they didn't successfully blow up our factories that were making bombs and, and tanks and so forth.
1: Well, we were too far away. I think that was the main reason.
0: But the concern that people had then, that is expressed in the book, was real at the time.
1: Yes, it was. And they might have done something. But as I point out in the book, the head woman who is Ukrainian, who becomes a spy for the Germans, what they would love her to do more than anything is find out where the planes are being manufactured, uh, where light aluminum is being manufactured. So they could uh, then somehow destroy these plants because they were being bombed twice a day, you know. And she was getting absolutely no cooperation at all from Germany. So it it was just a question of whether how long the spies in the United States were going to last.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of the spies in your book, Vera, a character who... I like a lot, too. She is supposed to be spying for the Nazis. She's in Detroit. She's supposed to tell them about what the war machine, the industrial war machine, is doing there in Detroit. What specifically were Detroit Industries doing, uh, Mr. Leonard? You know, Studebaker, Chrysler, Packard, uh, Henry Ford. You write in the book, he was very much caught up in war production, as was everybody else, but was kind of conflicted about the war at first. Well,
1: at first. But as soon as America entered the war, then he changed his mind, and he became wholeheartedly for, let's get going and build what we need. And they did an incredible job. Detroit became the arsenal of democracy. Yeah,
0: we forget that. And Vera says to one of her, I think she says it to her... Manservant, if you can call him that. Um, she says the Germans thought that they could end the war just by bombing one or two, you know, uh, aluminum plants. She says they have no idea how good this country is at just churning stuff out.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a fact. And turning it out so much quicker than originally.
0: You were in Detroit during the buildup to the war. As you said, you served in the war yourself. How did your own experiences during that time shape this novel, contribute to this novel?
1: Well, I didn't remember. I was in the Navy. In fact, I was in the Seabees, construction battalion of the Navy. And I was in the Pacific from 1943 until January of 1946. So that when I came home, and there was still rationing, All this was still going on, but I didn't remember any of it when I started to write this. I did more research for this book than any other book because the food rationing, the gas rationing, all of that, I had to look up. I had to find out. I had to concentrate on researching the war itself, what was going on each month of each year. And I had one big book that my researcher got for me that had a daily account of our participation in the second war and it was incredible that where we were with troops all over you know
0: so the home front story was something you had to look up because yes. you weren't at home
1: that's right i wasn't at home uh-huh and i didn't know anything about all the prisoners of war all the german pows that were here that surprised me quite a bit.
0: You said uh, earlier in your talk that there were more than three hundred thousand, which yeah. surprised me too. There was a prison of war camp. Just a historical note uh, here in New Hampshire, Camp Stark. So we've got oh. our own, our own footnote there. You mentioned the research. What else came up in the research, Mr. Leonard, that surprised you or reminded you of things that you had forgotten? Because as you said, you did extensive research for this book.
1: Yeah. Well, I made up a lot of things. For example, Carl Webster, I, I want him involved in the war. And he originally wants to join the cavalry. He wants to join or, or he's he's too old, he's 37, 38. He wants to join the Marines. And they said, "No, you know, try something else." Finally, he gets into the Navy and he gets into the the Seabees that I was in because I do remember that, you know, and what we did. <laughs> <laughs> because although what I did, I passed out beer, for a year and a half. We maintained an airstrip on Los Negros in the Admiralties, which I use in the book. We maintained the strip for fighter planes, Australian and American fighter planes that bombed, bypassed Japanese islands.
0: Did you say you passed out beer? Yes, Is that what I you did. Said?
1: I passed out. Everybody got three cans. Every other night. And <laughs> if, if all we had was hudapol, and I don't even remember where hudapol was made, no one would take it. They wouldn't drink it. <laughs> it's terrible.
0: You know, um, as I said, there's a lot of good home front history here in up in Honey's room that I had forgotten or that I didn't know. One thing that you capture on that was the extreme level of violence that people who had escaped the war had endured, and how that really can inflict some serious psychological damage on these people i 'm speaking more specifically about Bo- bohaden isn 't bohand i 'm not sure if i 'm pronouncing his name right Boudin, yeah yeah, uh, could you talk about that, Mr. Len a little bit? did you either see people who had gone through that or hear stories about uh, some people came out of this war with huge, huge psychological scars that would be almost impossible to heal.
1: Well, he, he was, uh, I describe how he, uh, being the Germans who locked him up immediately once they found him, uh, and, I mean, before they, he came to the United States, when he was still in Odessa with uh, Vera, who becomes head of the spy ring, uh, yes, they subjected him to uh, terrible, he had to wear a particular, a pink Star on his clothes, and the uh, the Jews wore a yellow star, and the uh, gypsies wore another color you know and and they were killed as often as not, I mean just for the fun of it, and he did survive all that and with vera 's help, but it doesn 't become that important in the book it's his background you know and what he is when we see him in america is the important thing that the question of, is of what is he is he good or bad or gay or what you know and that's that's what i concentrated on
0: well and in explaining what he went through both before the war and then the terrible hardships that he faced in the war even though as you said he's a bad bad guy Even with him, who is a really bad guy, you still offer a little empathy. This is why he's evil.
1: Yeah, but I I concentrate on, of course, Honey Deal. Honey Deal, to me, was a lot of fun. And she meets a guy who's very sympathetic to the Nazis, born in Germany, came to the United States when he was 14 years old. Now he's 20 years older than that. And uh, she thinks she can change him. She can turn him into a regular person. And she marries him. And he, she tells him jokes, tries to get him to loosen up a little bit, not be so serious. But he, he doesn't understand any of the jokes. And some of them are pretty funny jokes, I thought. I gathered jokes. I had to gather a few jokes, you know, for this. Um... Guy comes home <laughs> Guy comes home with a sheep under his arm. And now I got hope I get it right. And his wife his wife sees him, you know, she turns around from the sink and he says, This is the pig I've been sleeping with for so long. And she says, It's not a pig, it's a sheep. And he says, I wasn't speaking to you. (laughs) And Walter didn't get it. He didn't get it.
0: That's Walter, Honey Deal's German husband that she's married to for a year, who's part of this whole plot, which we won't give away. We won't give away this story. No. You know, Mr. Leonard, uh, this series is writers on a New England stage, and we do spend some time focusing just on the writing process. And you gave us our 10 rules, your 10 rules of writing earlier, and, and that was great. And it inspired a couple other questions from me, if I could ask you just a couple now. Someone asked you once, I'm an aspiring writer, how to get started. And you said, develop your own style by imitating.
1: Begin by imitating. Can you explain that? <laughs> well, I imitated Hemingway back in the early...
0: Hemingway, yeah. The late I
1: was... 40s and early 50s. I, I imitated uh, Hemingway, as so many, many thousands of people did, because he made it look easy. But finally, I realized, and when I was writing the Westerns, I would open up For Whom the Bell Tolls. When I was getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning to write a couple of pages before going to work, to write Chevrolet ads. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. The idea was I would just study him very, very, see what he'd do and what he didn't do. But one thing that he didn't show to me was that he had much of a sense of humor. And I felt I had a sense of humor and I wanted to exercise it. I I wanted to have at least a character or two with an attitude that they thought most things were funny. and so. I found Richard Bissell. Richard Bissell wrote Seven and a Half Cents in about the mid-50s. And that was turned into The Pajama Game. And he wrote another book, Say Darling, about the fact that it was turned into The Pajama Game and what he had to do with it. But, he also, but mainly he set stories on the Mississippi River where he was a pilot. He was a professional pilot. And he would take the boats that pushed the barges, a quarter of a mile of barges up and down the Mississippi River. And uh, he wrote stories set on those ships. And I love the characters and the dialogue, the way they talk. And this was real to me, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get real people into my stories, that they're not heroes the people that you could know easily.
0: So it's okay to develop your own style by imitating even though that seems well, counterintuitive. I think, well, you,
1: I think you've got to start that way. And I would I would copy a paragraph say of Hemingway on on my typewriter. And then I would write the next paragraph, you know, to see how it sounded and then I'd look in the book to see what he said you know and this is just exercise this is how to learn to write you gotta write to learn to write you gotta write a lot you gotta I think it takes though about a million words you know which could be in quite a number of books to uh, have any confidence in your style in the way you tell a story I don't think there's much style in what we read in, say, very, very popular writers. We, we see a style in, in literary writers, but we don't see the style in uh, so much in, well, people who are on the New York Times list at the top of the list who are, who are just kind of turning it out because they're concentrating on plot rather than characters, and how I,
0: much of your characters, and that's so important to you, your character development, their dialogue? How much of those characters, Mr. Leonard, infiltrate your life when you're in the midst of writing a novel? How much are they in your head all the time?
1: They, well, they are. They're in my head all the time. They, and they're real. They are real to me, and uh, I know them. Some, I, I know most of them better than I than I know friends of mine. <laughs> uh, but I was, I was on uh, Charlie Rose one night, and Martin Amos was waiting to go on after me. And uh, he had interviewed me once in Los Angeles on a program called, uh, I forgot what it was called. Anyway, he had interviewed me, and I felt that I should have been interviewing him, but I wouldn't know what to ask. Because as I explained to Charlie, I said, Martin Amos is a literary writer. He has the language. He's telling the story. He can do anything he wants. He can be the omniscient author. He can do scenes. He can do what he wants. I have to use my characters. I have to use their point of view because I don't have the language. I don't feel that secure with me telling the story, using a lot of narrative. Because most writers don't use nearly as much dialogue as I do. And Charlie Rose says, well, let's get Martin out here. And he came out and Charlie said, did you hear what uh, Elmore said about you? And Martin Amos said, well, my heart soared like a hawk. (laughs) And And I said to to uh, Charlie, see?
0: Uh. <laughs> I want to ask you a couple from the audience, too. Yeah. One person just wants to know what your day is like when writing. You know, do you type? Do you dictate? Do you go longhand? I'd add to that, what's your routine? You know, some writers sort of scatter it here and there. Others sit down for a strict eight-hour day, what do you? What is your style like? Well,
1: I sit down for the full day, but I'm starting a little later as I get older. But once I sit down, I'm into it. I'm 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 there, and and uh, it it gives me more pleasure than anything. Uh, I, I write in longhand, and I, but I type as I go along. I'm I'll, I'll write in longhand until I run out of gas or it just isn't se- seem to be working. Then I'll stop and I'll type that. And uh, if I get three or four pages a day, that's fine, an eight-hour day. It used to be easy to do uh, four or five pages a day in eight hours. But I, I don't have an answering machine for my phone. I, the phone rings. I pick it up because I don't, want to have to, I don't want to be obliged to call someone who leaves a message because I can just tell them, pick it up and say, I'm busy. uh...
0: when you say type, Mr. Leonard do you mean type onto a word processor or do you mean type type? I don't
1: have a word processor no, I haven't had time yet for that because I think I would be distracted so easily and I'd be looking up I would be looking at things that I would find, you know because everyone who tells me about it, that's what they do. They will waste a whole day <laughs> looking up things you know, that they find. And, and I don't want to fall into that yet. I think after I finish this book, maybe I'll learn how to at least learn how to get my uh, boarding pass. Uh,
0: I've got a couple the, more good ones for you,
1: actually.
0: All right. This is a good one. Uh, Have you ever abandoned a novel?
1: One. Just one. A producer asked me if I would write us a book about migrant workers. Migrant workers who strike and what that entails. And uh, I said, okay. So I wrote about a hundred pages and sent it to him. And he said, this isn't what I want at all. Well, so I took all those and I hung them up for parts that uh, most, of the, most of it then I used in uh, Mr. Majestic. Mr. Majestic I wrote as a screenplay, an original screenplay. Charles Bronson was in it. It was a $2 million budget. It made $18 million. And last month, I got a residual check. I mean, it's still paying residual checks. 33 years later, it's still paying. So that was uh, a smart move. But my m- movies that I've written uh, are not. I don't have my heart in it because I don't, I don't care for screenwriting at all. It's, you're you're involved you about... with too many people.
0: Speaking of films, I read a quote from you that said, I'm not concerned how close a movie comes to my book.
1: No, I'm not. Most authors care very deeply. Well, the chances are it won't be that close to the book. The chances are it won't be a good movie because (laughs) because most movies aren't any good. You know, I don't know how good movies are made, but there are good movies. And uh, I would like to be involved in more good movies, but I'm not going to write anymore. It's just, it's writing to order. It's writing for someone. It isn't creative writing to me.
0: Someone wants to know, do you ever get stuck on what comes next? If so, how do you get around it? If not, please make something up so I don't feel like a failed writer.
1: No. Well, if you're stuck then uh, go out to the kitchen and get some peanuts or something. <laughs> or take a telephone call or just interrupt it for a little bit and then get back and then you'll, it'll be clear to you, what, you should, what comes next.
0: I have another question for you. This came from a friend of mine, Elmer Leonard. He writes a lot about crime and shady characters. Has he ever been involved in crime or shady characters?
1: No. Um, a friend of mine, not a friend, guy I, I, I met at Telluride Film Festival, he said, I did a little time. I did three years, had to do with uh, drugs. And uh, it amazed me that th- these guys talk exactly the way your characters talk. Where do you get all that? And I said, well, I, I, I pick it up. I you, I, just, I read. You know, you just make up a lot of it. I said, what were, you, what were you in for? He said, oh, well, marijuana. He said, I couldn't prove that the marijuana I had was for my personal consumption. I said, well, how much did you have? He said, 400
0: pounds.
1: <laughs> so I put him in a book. <laughs> you can't resist people like that.
0: You were describing earlier the book that you're working on now, and you said that you were pulling this character from this past book and this character from this past book. Is that the first time you've done that in such a big way? I know with Up in Honey's Room, Carl is from a previous book, but is that the first time you've done that so extensively? I
1: think it is, yeah. But they're there, and I like the characters. Because before, uh, for example, in 1980 or 81, around in there, my publisher said let's use the same character who was in uh, City Primeval, and he was a Detroit homicide detective, Raymond Cruz. Let's use him in the next book. So I did, and I, and I uh, wrote the book and sent it to my agent in Hollywood, and he says, you've got to change this guy's name because Universal, no. United Artists owns him now. They bought the book, and if they don't want to buy this one, we're out of luck. We can't show it to anybody, so change his name. So I changed his name from Raymond Cruz in this next book to Brian Hurd. And I went through the whole manuscript and crossed out Raymond and put in Brian Hurd. But I missed one place. One place, in the book was published with Raymond. I forgot what page it's on. But Raymond shows up on that one page and people not many they don't read that closely a few people said who's raymond <laughs> but i left it i've always left that in there you know to see if they're paying attention <laughs>
0: Mr. Leonard, it's been really fun talking to you. I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for turning out tonight. It's wonderful to see everyone in the audience. And Elmer Leonard, this has been really fun. Thank you.
1: Thank you.